We are in John chapter 15, the last uh, two verses, and then moving through to John chapter 16, up to verse 11. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to chapter 15, verse 26, and we will read from that verse. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let us uh, ask God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. O Lord, we thank you for your word. It is to us life. It is life eternal. And it is not a word that comes from man, but the words that come from the mouth of God. And oh, what a privilege to be able to believe that we are reading here the words of God. May we have the proper respect, the proper reverence, the proper joy and everything else that is appropriate to receiving God's Word into our souls. We pray this for Jesus' honor and namesake. Amen. Well, uh, this week I, I had an airtight case against an individual for what I uh, believe was their sin. And uh, not only did I text the individual, are you crazy? Uh, and I don't know what else I texted after that, but then I got on the phone and said, are you crazy? And uh, this led to a good 15 or 20 minutes of my Bluetooth on Highway 1, uh, you know, chastising this individual for their actions. And uh, I'm happy to say the next day I received a text saying apology in capital letters as the heading of the text. And I thought, okay, you know, uh, this person is sorry. Uh, And then I did what I shouldn't have done. I read the text, and uh, lo and behold, I found out that in the text, uh, actually, it was apology, but not really. It was more of an attack and assault upon me. Uh, You you can tell I'm not totally devastated by this, because I know I'm right. Um, But it was interesting, because here I was starting out the fight and saying, you're wrong for doing this, and then the response comes, and it's actually the person's trying to flip it on me, and... uh, I thought, you know, uh, if this is a sick way of helping my introduction out to a sermon, I'm not enjoying this. 
Now, what am I trying to say? Well, uh, there is a little bit of Johannine irony going on in the passage before us. You see, the disciples, the apostles, are going to be put on trial, so to speak. They will be persecuted. They will be excommunicated from synagogues. And John is trying to tell us something very important. That actually, though they are the ones who are going to be put on trial, they are in fact putting the world on trial. Though the world persecutes them, they are actually going to prosecute the world. And John builds on this by giving us a wonderful distillation of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, you will sometimes think of the work of the Holy Spirit as this work whereby the person of the Spirit, He comes into your life and helps you to be holy, comforts you, makes you feel at peace with God. And while that is indeed true, that is not the burden of what John is discussing here in chapter 15 and 16 concerning the person and work of the Spirit. In fact, what we find is that it is a very public work. It is a work that affects not just the church and the people in the church, but the world. And so we could say that the understanding of the Holy Spirit must be public. It must be worldwide. And it must be, in a certain sense, confrontational. Most times we do not think of the work of the Spirit as confrontational, but that is precisely what we're being taught here. He is a prosecutor. Now, uh, John chapter 15, verse 26 and 27 is extremely important because uh, as you see the foundation from which he builds into chapter 16, our Lord says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. So right there you have Trinitarian understanding of God. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, who sends Him? Well, in a certain sense, the Father sends Him, but the Father does not send the Spirit unless Jesus Christ is also sending the same Spirit. He says explicitly, whom I will send to you, but the Spirit comes from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. So the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, but Jesus is actually saying something quite significant. I will be sending the Spirit from the Father. So when you get to the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is really a commentary on John chapter 15 and 16, especially chapter 16, verses 8 to 11, you find that Jesus, being exalted to the right hand of the Father, received from the Father what? The promised Holy Spirit that He has poured out that you are now seeing this day. That is in verse 33 of Peter's Pentecost sermon. Jesus goes to the Father. He is enthroned in heaven and He receives the promised Holy Spirit and pours it out. This is in fulfillment of what He says here in John chapter 15, verse 26. But notice something else that's extremely important in verse 27 because you really have a summary of theology. You have the Father sending the Spirit through Jesus Christ but verse 27 tells us, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Notice the church is involved. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now I know some of you are probably preparing for worship today, reading Calvin's Institutes last night. I understand. That's great. 
and you were flipping through the four books of Calvin's Institutes and you were like, you know what's interesting is Calvin is really building upon these two verses because he opens up book one with God the Father, book two with God the Son, book three with the work of the Spirit, and then in book four, it's the church. And then you had a light bulb going in your head and you said, you know what, I was also meditating upon the Apostles' Creed and I realized the Apostles' Creed begins with God the Father, then moves to the work of God the Son, then the Holy Spirit, and then goes, and I believe in the Holy Catholic Church and so on. The point is, this is basically how theology is designed. It is Trinitarian in the context of the people of God. And that foundation helps us to make sense now of everything in chapter 16, verses 1 to 11. Remove verse 27, and there's no real reason why Christ would speak to His disciples the way He does. Now notice what He says, I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. What is Christ most concerned about? He's concerned to protect His disciples from apostatizing from the church, from giving up the faith. I've said these things to you. The words of Christ are designed to prevent you from falling away. He's not concerned so much about death or even persecution. His concern is to speak to them, to preserve them, to keep them from falling away. And so you will notice what ends up happening in this persecution as it unfolds. They will put you out of the synagogues. This was an important thing to note. They are going to be kicked out of the synagogues. Now back in first century, when you were kicked out of the synagogue, as we find in John chapter 9, this was a big deal. Your social connections, your family connections, your basic reputation. If you were kicked out of the synagogue like the man born blind, you were basically ostracized from society. It's not like today, you know, if you get kicked out of a church and they say, hey, you know, you've sinned and you really need to repent and all that, you say, okay, that's fine, I'll go down the church, walk into that church. A few months later, you're being nominated for deacon or elder or maybe even pastor. It's different today. There's no social ramifications. Back then there was. This was real persecution. But not only are they put out of the synagogues, indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Can you imagine listening to this farewell speech? You think, this is not good. We're going to get kicked out of the synagogues. And then Jesus almost casually says, oh, and by the way, when everybody kills you, they're going to think they're offering a service to God. It's almost as like you want the apostles to jump in and say, hang on now, getting kicked out of the synagogues, I don't like that. But did you just say, whoever kills you? And that is precisely what Jesus says. And what makes it worse is that whoever kills you, I want you to think of Stephen, and I want you to think of the Apostle Paul now. Whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. When Saul stood by, he was approving what was taking place. He thought he was honoring God, serving God. And so Stephen the first public martyr in this sense of the Pentecost church is actually the fulfillment of what Jesus is saying right here. Now, they do this because they don't truly know God. And that was Paul's problem. 
He didn't know God. He didn't know the Father, nor did he know Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is constantly saying in John's Gospel, to know God is to know Jesus. You cannot know one without knowing the other. And the reason he tells them this, in the midst of being perplexed and basically, I would say, in a state of panic because of the uncertainty of what is about to take place. Remember, they're not reading this like we are in church on a Sunday morning, post-resurrection, Jesus is enthroned. They're right in the thick of things, wondering what is actually happening. Why is He speaking to us like this? Why is He saying He's going away? Why is He saying a helper is coming? Why is He saying we're going to be kicked out of synagogues and put to death? What's going on? And Jesus assures them, when these things happen to you, take heart. You will know that I said these things would happen. Now, as he continues in verse 5, he says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? There's almost a sense in which we might sympathize with the disciples a little bit. He said he's going to leave, but they aren't asking him where he's going and what's going on, and I think they are Uh, not only uh, dealing with a lot of unbelief in their hearts, but a lot of confusion, and uh, they seem to be very self-focused, whereas Christ is focused upon them. But because, in verse 6, I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So what happens when Jesus sees His disciples are filled with sorrow? What should He say? Well, notice what He says in verse 7. And it's quite a sad thing that he would have to say, I tell you the truth. Surely he should be able to say, nevertheless, it is to your advantage without saying, I tell you the truth. We usually do that. Uh, I don't know if your children are like this, but uh, when uh, things are a bit tense and they have to invoke all sorts of things, no, I absolutely promise. Or, uh, you know, sometimes you are a teenager and We used to say, I swear on my mother's life. I don't know why we never said my father's life, but maybe they just felt we loved our moms so much that we would never want to lie about our moms. I don't know. Did anyone ever say, I swear on my father's life? No, it was always mother's life. That's a sociological inquiry that we'll have to make. But the point is, people will sometimes have to say this to assure that they're speaking the truth. If anyone didn't need to say this, it was Jesus Christ. And yet he affirms, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go. And why is that? If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send Him to you. Now what does this mean? The first thing it means is that it's not as though God can't send the Spirit at all times and all places. David had received the Spirit. He says, do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. We read in the Old Testament of the work of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah and other places. It's not as though the work of the Spirit wasn't present. What Jesus is saying is, if I do not ascend, and if I am not enthroned as the exalted King, I will not receive my reward And if I do not receive my reward, whereby the Spirit is poured out afresh upon my head, like the oil of anointing was poured out upon the heads of the kings and it dripped down, you have to understand when Jesus went to heaven, He was enthroned. He was anointed afresh. And He received the promised Holy Spirit. And as He receives that Spirit, that Spirit now comes to each and every one of us from the forehead of Christ, from the name of Christ. And that's very important. 
You are explicitly receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as the Spirit is poured out. Now, he does say something in verse 7 that is vitally important. Because he says, if I go, I will send him. But he doesn't just say, I will send him. I think most people, practically, the way they live their lives and the way they understand the work of the Spirit, they want to just end the sentence, but if I go, I will send him. And they remove those two words, to you. Now, how do they do that? I'm willing to bet none of you have crossed out those words, to you. But the question is whether you have, in fact, practically crossed those out in the way that you think and speak about the work of the Spirit. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe I can illustrate this. Last night, I thought I would go cruise around uh, some of the darker, more uh, troubled places of Langley called Murrayville to pick up my daughter, Katie. And uh, she was at her friend's house. And I go there and uh, I knock on the door and sit down and uh, say, hello, how are you doing? And I says, and, uh, and what are you doing tomorrow uh, let's call her name Ashlyn. Uh, what are you doing tomorrow, Ashlyn? Uh, and she says, well, I do have uh, this thing at 12. It's, a, uh, I think, a, a wedding shower. And I says, and will you be going to church tomorrow morning? We have a service at 9 a.m. And uh, she looks at me uh, uh, thinking, well, 9 a.m., I'm uh, in grade 12, but uh, this is Katie's dad, and so uh, what should I do? Now, the question is, was she at church at 9 a.m. this morning? Who thinks she was? Come on, yes. Why would I tell the story if it wasn't a victorious one? (laughs) Come on, people. Who thinks she would have if I hadn't said to her, Ashlyn, what are you doing tomorrow morning and do you want to come to church at 9 a.m.? Who thinks that this young lady would have just woken up at 8.30 and says, you know what, I really feel the Spirit is just going to prompt me to get in my car and go to church at 9 a.m. and worship the Lord. Now, possibly that could have happened. I'm not willing to make the argument that she would have just magically got up and uh, done that and said that couldn't happen. It could have happened. But my point is this. Sometimes you have to get outside of your nice little comfort zone of saying, well, it's up to the work of the Spirit. It is up to the work of the Spirit, but the Spirit comes to the disciples. And when it comes to the disciples, they then have a ministry in which they're to carry out in the power of the Spirit. But that doesn't exempt them from saying things. It doesn't exempt you from not speaking about Christ and not speaking about the Gospel and not talking to people and saying, oh, are you going to go to church or whatever it may be. And I think that's why some people would like to remove the to you. I will send the Spirit and He will do all of the work. You can just sit by like fans at a sports game and enjoy the ride. Let the Spirit do it all. That's how some people think about the work of the Spirit. No, the work of the Spirit is such that Christ is going to mediate His ministry to this world through His people. And His people sometimes have to open their mouths and talk. However uncomfortable that may be. Now what ends up happening? Well, look at verse 8. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So here you have 
one of the most densely packed sections in all of God's Word concerning the work of the Spirit. And notice, the work of the Spirit is firstly a negative one. Not negative in the sense that there's a a bad result, but it's a negative one in the sense that He's going to convict. The Spirit takes on the role of prosecutor. And because the Spirit takes on the role of prosecutor, the disciples take on the role as prosecutors in the name of Jesus Christ. Because that word convict is used concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, we may not have a full idea of what that means except that Christ explains in verse 9. And uh, it is interesting to me that you can uh, see Paul before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and he is kind of basically fleshing uh, this concept out in the way in which he preaches or Peter in Acts chapter 2. Now, concerning sin in verse 9, because they do not believe in me. If you can just stay with me and keep your minds firing on all cylinders, you can learn something very important this morning. Sin is not first and foremost about breaking commandments. It is about breaking commandments. Sin is any want of conformity or transgression against the law of God. Absolutely. But sin here is actually identified in a more personal manner. The world will be convicted regarding sin because of unbelief in a person. Because it really doesn't matter about keeping the commandments or breaking the commandments if you remain in a state of unbelief concerning who Jesus is. In fact, you will not be able to keep commandments if you are not first united to Jesus Christ and having put your faith in Him, willing to live for His glory. So the bigger problem is not the breaking of the commandments. The bigger problem is you just don't believe in the One whom God has sent. And so what will happen? The Holy Spirit will come and convict people. And so what does Peter do in his Pentecost sermon? When they heard this sermon about what they had done, you with the help of lawless men put Him to death. The focus is on Christ. What happened when they heard this? They had a warm, fuzzy feeling in their heart that all was good. No. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. They were convicted regarding Jesus Christ. Their sin of unbelief in Christ. Someone said to me earlier, Oh, that's a nice suit you've got on today. I've been dressing down the last few weeks because it was so hot so I thought oh, okay, I can get away with a short sleeve but you know collar and all the rest and so uh, Ferd saw me this morning and it was quite funny because he decided that he was going to dress a bit more casual but then I put on a suit and so I said well actually the reason I put on a suit is because my mother had said my last few sermons weren't very good <laughs> so I thought it's probably because I'm not wearing a suit so I put on a nice suit today to you know get my mojo back and uh, be able to preach a good sermon And, well, but before I'd heard that nasty rumor from my mother, I had here the point, what a good sermon in brackets, 
And as much as one may enjoy hearing what a good sermon, that's not really the response of what happens when people are convicted by the work of the Spirit. When Peter had finished preaching, they didn't all say, what a good sermon. Excellent, Peter. You're on your game today. It must be the suit. No. They were cut to the heart. In fact, it's almost better, and you could probably get away with this translation if you have some versions, what a bad sermon, Peter. What a bad sermon because they were cut to the heart. This is not good for us. And they were convicted. And that's what happens in times of revival is people are convicted because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. They do not love Jesus Christ. They do not live for Jesus Christ. They live for themselves, for their glory, their will. They don't actually believe. And this true conviction that happens through the preaching of mortal men who have indwelling sin is the chariot upon which the Holy Spirit rides as He brings conviction into this world. Now concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer. So the world is going to be convicted concerning righteousness, but why does He say, because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer? And the best that I can do, and believe me, I've tried. I listened to an Anglican preacher this morning, uh, a famous New Testament scholar, and got really no help from him whatsoever. Nice accent, though. And I think what's being said here is that the world will be convicted of righteousness. And when Jesus says, because I go to the Father, there's a sense in which you have to accept that your righteousness is going to bring you to God. It will bring you to God. But what will your righteousness do for you when you are brought to God? And when Jesus goes to the Father, His righteousness is a righteousness that is so pleasing, so perfect. It is according to everything that God had commanded him. I've only spoken the words that the Father has given me. I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So when Jesus goes to the Father, He goes as the spotless Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world and He presents His righteousness. He can go to the Father with His righteousness, but guess what? No one else can and think that they will stand. So the world will have to be convicted concerning their righteousness because they do think that they are righteous. They do think, by and large, they do more good things than bad things. They do think that they're not such a bad person. And if they have done anything wrong, there's usually a thousand excuses explaining why they did that. The role of the Spirit in the preaching or whatever faithful application of the Gospel there may be from each and every one of you to an unbelieving world, or to anyone for that matter, is to remind people there is only one person who can go to the Father concerning His righteousness. And that is the only righteousness that God will accept. And that is a righteousness that you can receive. But you must give up your own. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so the world will be convicted and the world must be convicted that if they are living in unbelief, as you see in verse 9, 
And if they are living in self-righteousness, then they are going to face the same judgment that Satan faces. That if you go to the Lord in your own righteousness, you are going to receive the same sentence of condemnation that the devil receives. You're going to present to the Father what the devil presents, even though his is on a much greater scale. But essentially, it's the same net result. Satan will go with his righteousness and God will cast him into the lake of fire. And the world needs to be persuaded of the bankruptcy of not only self-righteousness, but of a worldly way of approaching God. And Satan is the consummate disobeyer of God. But he has been judged. He has been judged because when Christ was raised from the dead, that was the victory over Satan. And so Satan has lost and he will be judged by the one who is righteous. Now, what can we say just by way of conclusion? You want a summary of all this? I had someone come up to me after and say, oh, that was a lot. I'm going to need to listen to that again. I said, good. Others said, that was a really bad sermon. Others figured out other ways not to say good or bad. One said, that's given me something to think about. Well, may I give you something to think about in summary? What is the principal work of the Spirit in terms of the public work of the Spirit? Not talking about assurance now of how you are illuminated to know you're a child of God. That is true and that is elsewhere stated. I'm not talking about how you're growing in holiness. The public work of the Spirit, the principal work of the Spirit is to be a continual public presentation of the cross of Christ before the world. What Jesus did on earth, He now still does from heaven through us. Nothing changes. What was the burden of Christ's ministry? It was to preach of repentance and forgiveness of sins. It was to preach of His death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead, His ascension into heaven, His enthronement in the glorious place where the Father and the Spirit is and the angels. That is what we're to continue to do. And interestingly, the primary work of the Spirit in the public sphere is actually firstly negative before it can be positive. It is you must be convicted. You must repent. You must turn from your sin. You must give up your righteousness. And you must know that there will be defeat if you do not believe in the One whom God has sent. We must show that this world is utterly bankrupt. But actually in Christ, not only are you not bankrupt, but you possess everything through Him. You have been tasked in one way or another, not only pastors and preachers, but you have been tasked to continually continue the work of Christ on earth in the power of the Spirit. But you have to do it. I will send Him to you. And so my question for you is, what evidence is there, not just that you have a quiet time with God and that you do your daily devotions and that you have a time of prayer, Oh, well, good, and I'm happy about that. But what are you doing that actually shows that you might be someone who is going to be persecuted because you are proclaiming the work of Christ? 
And the good news of the gospel is you can take absolute comfort in the fact that when you proclaim these truths, the Spirit will do His work. And so you will not be unsuccessful. You will not be absolutely successful because Christ wasn't, but you will not be unsuccessful. And Jesus warned His disciples that there would be some things that would happen to them that would not be particularly enjoyable. But imagine the joy as we see in Acts 5 where the apostles are being beaten and they go away rejoicing that they were able to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. We don't even want to speak to people about the Lord, much less physically suffer. And we have to ask ourselves, are we a light in our own bedroom in our quiet time? Or are we also a light in this world? Because we have something to say with a courage from above, a boldness from above, a wisdom from above, but also a Holy Spirit from above who works through us to accomplish the ends to bring Christ His glory. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for the work of the Spirit not some work that we simply watch, but a work that we have been commissioned to be partakers of. And so we ask that we will remember what a solemn duty it is to be professors of the name of Jesus Christ, but to take comfort in the fact that we are not alone and that we can trust Christ to do His work through us, for He has promised that, and so we accept not only the duty and challenge, but the joy of being lights in this dark, dark world. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We'll have the offering before we sing our...